to Pantisocracy, and this is your host, Miss Panty Bliss. Oh, wow. You're so sweet. Hi. Oh, you're all so sweet. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I know you're only doing that because I look bloody amazing. Hi, <laughs> and welcome uh, to our Pantasocratic parlor, if we will. And my parlor tonight, well, it has a very female vibe, besides my gorgeous self, of course. I've got four fabulous women with me talking sisterhood and Ireland. So I'm going to introduce them to you. And first up, there's a woman of breathtaking words. It's Athenry poet Elaine Feeney. Elaine has been described as one of the most provocative poets to come out of contemporary Ireland, and who might argue with that? Her work is award-winning, it's sharp, it's witty and penetrating, and often draws on the experience of being a woman in Ireland. Elaine is a farmer's daughter, although you wouldn't know to look at her. She's a teacher, a mother of sons, and she's now become the creative force in a new oral history project around the Tune Babies case. Next, meet Feda, a.k.a. Emma Garnet. And if sisterhood is our theme today, well, we've already met her big sister on this show, Loa. And this multi-talented Afro-Irish family draws on the sounds and soul of both Sierra Leone, where Emma's dad is from, and Dublin, where her mom is from. Feda's music mixes West African rhythm and beats with dance, house, and even hip-hop. And she's just brought out a very smooth-sounding collaboration with her big sister, Loa. So we'll expect some songs later. Boss, Emma is also an astro-bloody physicist. You know, mentoring physics students by day and making hot music by night. Please welcome Emma. Dan. Please, welcome a woman who helped kick off the women's movement in Ireland back in the early 70s. It's first wave feminist and writer, Rosita Sweetman. Rosita's book, On Our Knees, published in 1972, threw light on a very Catholic church-controlled state and followed it in 1979 with On Our Backs, exploring sexuality and the lives of women in Ireland. Both were denounced from the pulpit. Well done, you. <laughs> <laughs> she's written a novel, and along the way, she's worked as a journalist in East Africa. She's lived in South America. She's had her children, Chupi and Luke, and today she's working on a memoir and campaigning for Mother Earth these days as much as Mother Ireland. So please welcome again, Rosita. And completing our quartet is the singer and musician Nina Hines. Now, Nina grew up hanging out behind the counter of O'Donoghue's Bar in Dublin, which is a well-known watering hole for politicians and journalists. Her dad, Desi Hines, was running it. And Nina was rocking on the Irish music scene for years before she took off to Berlin over a decade ago. She made it a home for herself and her fella and her two children. Now Nina mixes making music and performing with teaching it to young kids. And she's one of the forces behind a new Irish festival in Berlin. So please welcome Nina Hines. <laughs> But before we get on to talking to our guests, as is my prerogative, seen as my name is in the title of the show, I get to say a few words. My mother never burned her bra. She's much too frugal to burn a perfectly good bra. And anyway, she needed her bras to manage her warm, hefty mammy breasts. My mother did not get the train to Belfast with a noisy gang of women and return later the same day with fists full of condoms to be greeted at Connolly Station by a flanks of Gardaí and press photographers. 
I don't ever remember my mother reading Gloria Steinem or Betty Friedan, and she definitely wasn't on the pill. <laughs> and I don't really recall her ever describing herself as a feminist or, well, a women's liver, but she didn't have to. The children's allowance is very important to my mother. Her father had died when she was 12, leaving her mother to raise four kids on her own on a gas company secretary's wage. My mother, the eldest, had to grow up fast. As soon as she finished secondary school on the South Circular Road, she went straight into a job in Guinness's because her mother was determined that the two boys would get a college education and her secretary's salary alone wasn't going to cover that. Still, my mother liked working, even if she didn't get to keep everything she earned, even if she would have liked to go to college too. When her brothers were educated, she married my dad. And shortly after, he got a job in Ballinrobe, County Mayo. And legend has it that my Dublin mother landed in Ballinrobe and cried for two days. <laughs> she had six children, as planned, in quick succession, three boys and three girls, because she is that organized. <laughs> and the children's allowance became very important to my mother. See, every penny that came into the house came from my father. It was money he earned and was therefore, in my mother's mind, his money. It didn't matter that he didn't see it like that. It didn't matter that he gave it to her. It was still, to my mother, his money. And that bothered her. She didn't like buying anything for herself out of his money. And even more, she didn't like buying anything for him a small birthday or Christmas present, for example, out of his money. It annoyed her. But every penny that came into the house came through my father, except for the children's allowance. That didn't come from my father and wasn't his money. The children's allowance came to the post office from my mother. That was her money. And she would save some of it and use it to buy small birthday gifts for my father or on rare occasions, perhaps even something nice for herself like she would have done occasionally when she worked in Guinnesses. My mother could have been anything she wanted to be. She's a reader, my mother. A stack of books always on the bedside table, everything from Maeve Binchy to theology, to the theology of Maeve Binchy. <laughs> She's a writer, my mother. She writes stories and quirky, funny poems. She took a creative writing course with the Active Retirement Group. She's sharp, my mother, sharpened by the crossword every day, simplex and cryptic, and sudoku and puzzles and big complicated jigsaws. She's good with numbers, too. She's a doer, my mother, likes to keep busy, and when she's busy, she likes to keep even busier. Six kids, two dogs and a cat squeezed into a Volkswagen Beetle brown bread in the oven, Connick, secretary of the community games managing the credit union. She could have been anything she wanted to be, my mother, in different circumstances, in a different time. And she was too smart to not sometimes be annoyed by that. My three sisters inherited many of my mother's traits. They're hardworking, kind, selfless, reliable, principled, no-nonsense. I've always wanted to be more like the admirable women in my life. My three sisters grew up in a different time from my mother, a different country, with opportunities my mother could only have dreamed of. My sisters could have been almost anything they wanted to be, and they were, though in many respects, what they wanted to be was just like our mother. Thank you. Uh, let me start with you, maybe. Um, yeah. Do you think of yourself as a feminist? And if you do, since when or why? 
Yes, absolutely. I think of myself as a feminist. But it's an interesting question because I only realised I was female around the age of 13 or 14. So I grew up on a farm, as you said, and with, I had three brothers around the same age as me. And there was no gender difference whatsoever. And it was only, you know, after puberty and so on that I realised I was female and that things were quite different between my experience and my brother's experience. So it was deeply personal, my first, I suppose, delve into feminism. And just, you know, to reiterate what you said about your mum there, also noticing, you know, financial control in the house would have been dads and so on. And I started to kind of awaken in a very small microcosm way in the house situation. So that would be my first delve into it. Mm. Nina, so same question to you, I guess, really. Absolutely, yes. I'm a feminist. And I think anybody who's not a feminist is a human hater. And I'm a feminist because I think it's the only way for the human race to go. It's how could you not be? And what woke you, as the kids would say? Um, Yeah, because I used to think of it as a dirty word. I used to be a little bit embarrassed by it because I never felt that I had to fight more than my brothers. I have five Mm. brothers, so I I felt uncomfortable with the word because I felt, well, why do I have to say it? It's obvious. But then I realised maybe about 10 years ago, having a daughter, she's 11 now, and just but it's like it's motherhood really is what yes that woke, woke it up for me emma well i'm definitely a feminist and i'd have to say motherhood too but i'm not a mother so i think because i was raised by a single mom who was a feminist as well but it only came into my consciousness as i turned to a teenager and realized how hard it really was for her and how so much of that had to do with the fact that she was a woman mm. trying to work, coming from a time where women in the workforce wasn't the norm and moving into a time where it was. Well, because you were experienced too, because you were born in London. Yeah. Then you moved here when you were three. three yeah. And then back to Africa. Yeah. Those cultures are quite different very too. Very different. Yeah, very different. I mean, the way society sees gender is very fixed in West Africa. Women and men have different roles and they're very stationary there's not a spectrum Mm. of things you can do but i will say that the men that are there are forced to do the roles that they have because they get advantages for those roles so there's an atmosphere of okay if we're going to live in a society where everything is the patriarchy then you have to do your job Mm. (laughs) and so you hear about west african wives being like super super tough on their husbands mauritanian women are known for beating up their husbands okay it's it's not really a laughing matter but it's just in the context of west africa that's huge because your mother though she was a dub she is yeah she's born in Mm. very different time to now in crumlin she's a feminist but she also is old-fashioned in how she views roles and i think living in west africa adapted her idea about feminism as well Mm -hmm. so she doesn't only have a eurocentric idea of feminism i think she's very intersectional in that Mm. way well you know one of the great joys about this show is i get to meet people and then we get to dig into your backgrounds and you know ask you all the questions we ever wanted and i am now desperately wanting to meet your mother because we've had your sister on too so i i feel like i know know a bit about her and sorry Sorry, she sounds more interesting than you I guys. I know, I know. That's why I'm here. I know. Yeah. I know. She, she'll be so, so happy that you said that. Oh, good. That. We're going to get her. We're going to get her on. Yeah. Well, she went. She did a PhD. You know. Yeah. She's she's a phenomenal, phenomenal woman who, despite how she's trained us to to be almost sometimes safe in our decision making because she's worried about us all the time, she has lived like whatever way she wants. She's made decisions that you have to be so brave to make. She met my dad in Kenya in her 20s when she'd moved there to teach English. 
she gave birth to Sally, came back to Ireland with like a six foot four black man and his kid and her kid. She must be the talk of Crumlin. She was, certainly was. Um, and then the talk of Maynooth and then the talk of here, there and everywhere. And she just put her head down and, and, and kept and going on. And is she as beautiful as her daughter is? She's an Irish woman, so she's like, oh, I don't care about what's this <laughs> But she's stunning. She's absolutely okay, stunning. We're, we're definitely getting her on. Yeah, <laughs> do, please. Now, Rosita, in a way, I have to sort of resist dropping to my knees in the green room and, you know, falling at your feet. Because in, in lots of ways, you are sort of a towering figure in the feminist movement in this country. And so the, the experiences of these women, and even though it, it's not that many huge number of years between you, their experience is so different to what yours was. So you were 20 years old when this sort of, I don't know, emerged, this movement, really. Yeah, well, the 70s was a fantastically political time. Mm. People were out marching for civil rights, for gay rights, anti-Vietnam war. And then, um, really, Maureen de Berke founded the Irish Women's Liberation Movement. And Maureen thought, well, we're marching for everyone else except ourselves. Mm. We should found a women's movement here. And it was started in Bewley's. And who who was at those first early meetings? It was basically Nell McCafferty, Mary Marr, who was then woman's editor of the Irish Times, Mary Kenny, who was then woman's editor of the Irish Press, Mm. with sort of hot pants up to here and (laughs) a huge pipe. How times have changed. Very, very... (laughs) But she was super radical and Mm. was very tiny, but a lot of the women were involved in writing and journalism. So stuff got out. And then this was launched on the Late Late Show. Mm. So every woman in Ireland suddenly knew there was a women's movement. It really isn't that long ago. And yet sometimes you say things to young people and, and they just like their mouths fall open. I mean, for example that you had to leave the civil service when you got married, if you were a woman, or that you couldn't buy things on higher, higher purchase unless your husband okayed it first. You know what I mean? That's a woman sort of... was officially the chattel of her husband, which is she was his possession, like mm. a car or a piece of furniture. And, you know, there are always nice men and horrible women and nice <laughs> yeah. women and horrible men, but it was the architecture mm-hmm. of patriarchy was mm-hmm. so in favour of men. Yeah. Like, a guy could go to England, divorce his wife, take the children, take the family house, and she would be left with absolutely nothing, like, Mm. without her children. And legally, that was all allowed. And oddly, you had less rights as a married woman than you did as a single woman, in a way. Oh, your rights disappeared as a married woman. But so you were 20 years old... And this was like pre the internet, so it's not like you were like following movements all around the world every day like the kids can nowadays. You're sort of in a, on this island. How the hell did you, at 20 years old, discover this and throw yourself into it? Well, I suppose I was politically involved because mm. that was the hot thing to be at the time. Yeah. Everyone who was in politics, in journalism, they were all out marching. Yeah. You know, like Mary Kenny said, we made the news and then we came back and wrote about it. <laughs> You know, there was Mm. an element of that. And once feminism came, like Nina was saying, it just seemed so logical. Yeah, Yeah. of course. So I've always found it odd when we went through this period where the word was unfashionable and you'd constantly see women sort of saying, oh, well, I'm not really a feminist, but... And that all seems so odd to me, but to you it must have seemed, I don't know, in a way, crushing. It was almost killed off, I think, feminism, Mm. during, say, neoliberalism, you know, when... Everything was money worship. Mm. Then feminism 
did become a dirty word. Mm. Particularly young women were afraid to say, yeah. mm, should I say I'm a feminist, you know? It was Whereas women. now it's, everybody yeah. is, wants to be a feminist. Well, all the good people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, nothing comes from nothing in a way. So you, your mother was a liberal sort of woman, certainly in her time. She was educated in England, which I think was a huge thing. She didn't have that politeness or total cravenness towards the Catholic Church. Mm. The Protestants got to her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I remember being expelled from school, coming home, you know, in absolute terror, and Mum just said, did you do it? It was the first time anyone had asked me that. My, and uh, I said, no. And she just marched me straight back, take her back, you know. And had you done it? No, I hadn't actually, <laughs> no. <laughs> I was there, but I hadn't done it. <laughs> oh, I was there. <laughs> I didn't inhale. <laughs> Not then, sure, yeah. Elaine, um, yes. let's start with a, a little poetry. Um, tell us what you're going to do. I'm going to read a poem first called The Radio's Gospel about my mum and the influence of the radio on her life because she would have left a working-class family in Galway City to come to the countryside mm -hmm. to rear her family. Mm. And there were five in my family, and it's just about how she often talks about how the radio was her only company. Yeah. When we were at school and there was nothing, you know, it was very lonely and very, very isolating. And she left school early. I felt like Gay early. Byrne was a member of our family. Yeah. Totally, like. yeah. I remember being in the RT studios with her a few years ago and all she wanted to know was where was Jerry Ryan's studio? So she wasn't interested in hearing me on arena. She just went straight there, you know, and she was yeah. really bowled over by the experience. Larry mm. Gogan, I think, took her in to see the studio and it was like sort of but, but, but Jamaica. Like, I have such clear memories of, you know, I knew when I was sick because mm. you were home from school and you were hearing the different Pat Kenny or whatever it was. Yeah, you know. Or Harbour Hotel, does anyone remember Harbour that? Harbour Hotel, oh my God, yeah. the highs, the lows, yeah. the drama. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it was wonderful because it's auditory as well, so yeah. you just, it's very intimate, I think. But she definitely said that the radio educated her. You know? I think Wonderly Wagon turned me gay, so. <laughs> 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 so well, well, let's hear it, yeah. And it's, just, it's called The Radio's Gospel. The Radio Was Gospel. Early in September, our mother walked us home, small children by the hand, miles and miles and miles, taking a long road to Mountain North with its marshes and branches. We thought she had gone quite mad. But her lessons took some time to learn. I rushed and picked blackberries before they would rust and shoved them deep to the dark cave of a Tupperware beaker. Her radio was gospel, the mechanical throat in our kitchen, the farming weather, the sea forecast, the promise. Knots and winds and waves, from Carnsore to Oranmore, from Mizzen to Mallon. Gay, Nell, and all the Mondays at Guy's Women sat at our kitchen table and saved her from multiple more labours. And while she'd still cook the dinner, she would educate her daughters. And this was love. And when I was pregnant and asked about labour, she was practical, weeded out my flower beds, washed the windows, changed the beds, for that stretching could snap the red cord around a small neck. When I married, she gave me jam jar advice on sex. Nothing is easy now, as a mother, balancing on a fulcrum of rage and love, loss and end, a brittle honeycombed foundation. When I would die from brain clot fear, she swore to me if I stroked, she would help me to sleep deep in Switzerland and dress me in decent clothes. 
My daughter is sick, she would say, but she will be okay, she would say. Now the weeds are choking the roses, endless sheets of polythene plastic covered over by fresh chip bark in our front garden. She's starting over. I sit on her new bed and trace my finger over her books and clothes and bits of ends, glass jars, tissues, costume jewellery, photos of her grandkids. She'd have loved good rings, she tells me. But she has virtue in powerful proportion and diamond rings and emerald things come at some cost, we agree. We salted the guts from the fruits, then made blackberry tarts. Busy insects ran wild in the red, red water. Our days together are her chattels now. They are her rings, her diamond things. And this is our love. Your own relationship with your mother, like you had sort of a brush with death, shall we say. Well, well tell us about that first and then I want to... Okay, so I mm. was diagnosed with a brain clot on one of my children, but one nurse said it would be a stroke if anything happened with this clot. And I said, I can't live in, you know, certain situations. And mm. I remember having a very serious conversation mm. with my mom in the hospital when um, she swore if I did have a stroke. She said, you know, I would look after you because my mother was deeply practical. Like in the poem, she would help you when you were pregnant by working in the house and helping you with domestic chores and so on. But she wouldn't say, oh, I absolutely love you or anything like that. You know, it was so it was a really difficult moment, but a really quite a beautiful moment in our relationship that she promised she would do that. Mm. But it was a really, really serious time. And um, I said, you'd have me sit in front of Coronation Street all day. (laughs) (laughs) And she said, I promise I wouldn't. But it was just very interesting. You know, these things bring us closer together. And I think then I understood what she would have went through. She had five children. Her mother had 11 children children and that all this this journey really changes you as a person as a woman you know as I said when I thought I was a tomboy and I thought we were all the same and suddenly you're very different from your brothers and suddenly you have an intimate moment with your mother and she makes this promise that's catastrophically massive you know yeah yeah when you've had an experience like people always want you to have some wonderful wisdom from facing (laughs) death and all that did you I promised my husband I'd be nicer. <laughs> be nicer. That's what you I, I, I did. There was There was one time that I said, if I survive and this baby survives, I will be so kind and calm because I'm quite erratic. And one of your sons is here with us. This is Finn. Yeah. Was she the nicest and kindest and most wonderful mother ever? <laughs> the jury's out, it would appear to seem. Um, but no, of course you don't. You get back to work, you get back to life. But it definitely, yeah. maybe a bit more humble and a bit more appreciative of your decent friends and a little less arrogant. Well, our relations with our mothers is, is so huge to us. And, it, and then you were the one who mentioned earlier that motherhood in a way changed your perspective because it gives you a longer view because suddenly you're thinking about how the world will be in eight years. Did motherhood change your whole outlook? It's on- given me a power because I, I was a little blind, a little blinkered in my own little world before. And then I've had to open my world to society. I'd had, I have to become a member of society, which I was never before. I was an artist, so I was a little on the outside. And I've had to go to school. I have to be a parent in the school and act normal. <laughs> and uh, just realizing that your kids are so influenced by you and how you act and how you are in the world and the people you invite into your home and mm. 
where you go with them and just seeing how the world works sickens me actually and trying to navigate that with my children and steer them in some kind of direction but then not try to push my own ideals on them. Well, well it's the responsibility of parenthood. There isn't is, it? yeah. Yeah. You don't want to push your ideals on them. But you've got to tell them, these are my ideas! <laughs> yeah, like, you know, you know my ideas <laughs> don't cross the road without You don't looking. have to take them on, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, Rosita, did you have a similar experience uh, of motherhood? It's very interesting that it opens you to society. It definitely does, mm. yeah. Because you have to t go to parent-teacher meetings or whatever. Yeah, yeah and to the totally. shops, like shopping and cooking and all of that. Yeah, and there's quite a bit of judging, I think, or you certainly feel you're being judged all the time. As a mum. Well, you sort of, in some ways, opted out of some of that because you homeschooled both of both them. Both Chupi and oh, Luke, okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, well, that's a kind of big decision. It was a big decision, but Chup says being homeschooled is like swimming in the Atlantic. It's absolutely hellish while you're doing it, but it's great afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I had very wonderful neighbours. They were homeschooling six children And they didn't sort of say, okay, everybody up on maths at nine o'clock. Mm. It was um, follow each child's creativity or, you know, so Chup would, she loved doing maths. Like that was her relaxation to mm. get out maths books. Luke got into history. So it was like trying to follow them rather than shoving this subject, that subject. Yeah. Now, Feda, she also mentioned there that she loved maths. And look at you sitting there, an astrophysicist. Was that a natural thing for you? You were just like... No, it no. wasn't. It's funny that you mentioned, like, homeschooling and people shoving things in front of you and getting you to learn that thing. Because I wouldn't have done science if it hadn't have been kind of shoved in front of me. My, neither of my parents studied science, but I think growing up the way they did they had this idea that studying science would just secure you and mean that you're going to be a success. And mm. then once you did that study science, you can go faff around and do music classes, whatever, but just please study to get a degree in science. So we all, all four of us have science degrees. And um, Loa, who I know is a, is a pharmacist. She's a pharmacist. <laughs> yeah, my, pharmacist. Yeah. Yeah. The most glamorous um, pharmacist in the world. Yeah, Irene. And to be honest, I, I'm really glad. Mm. So from our parents' point of view, I think... They said that you're going to get offered to do a, a degree for free in Ireland, which is a huge thing. For them, that was just, like, massive. And you need to use that opportunity the best that you can and study a subject that you're good at and that you can use to your advantage. And as each year went, I was more and more in love with the subject, actually. Mm. And now my music and my physics career, they both support each other. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if I would ever want to do anything full-time. In fact, my parents, what they've ended up teaching me is that I, I like to do a lot of things and I don't really want to ever have one job that I do all the time and that's it. Well, you know, one of the things that you know, we tried to miss-bust on this series was... Um, The idea that people were sort of either artistic or scientific or yeah, you know, just yeah, yeah, nonsense. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Now you're going to do song for us, and it's Ashgelga. Shells, yes. So uh, tell us about it. Uh, it's called Erwan Vincha. It's a very sad song, as so many Shano songs are. Nobody knows who wrote it, but the song is in the words of a woman on her deathbed to her children, mm. telling them what she wants, how she wants to go, how she wants to pass. It's extremely sunny. Sad. It's a sunny, bright, you know, young thing. <laughs> But it's very beautiful, and I, I arranged some guitar to it. So, yeah, I'm going to, like, defy the laws of Shano singing and accompany myself with a guitar. Thank you. Yeah, well, let's hear it. <laughs> 
There's something about the sound of it that just resonates in our Irish. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I am also very uh, influenced by like traditional West African music, mm. and I find the singing to be like some kind of spiritual similarity. Like it brings you to a, the same place. I mean, musically as well, the way uh, the ornamentation in in Shano's singing is really similar. Also, the power in the singer's voice. The fact that most Shano singers have a, a an attack in their voice that's very hefty usually. That style is the same in West Africa. The name Feda, which you Feda. use as yeah. the stage name. So I used to be called Feather. And mm. some people hear it and they're like, that almost sounds like an Irish word. It sounds like something you would say in an accent. And it sounds like something you would say in a Sierra Leonean accent or an Irish accent. It sounds like someone saying Feather with a Sierra Leonean accent, Feda. So uh, that's where I got it. Now, Nina, yes. I had no idea that you grew up in O'Donoghue's pub. Well, I was, I was in the pub a lot, yeah, as a kid, but I, I didn't grow up all the time in the pub. We didn't live above it. Well, you know what? I did. You lived above a Donahue's. I lived, you know, the, the back of my... I, for a number of years back in 
mid 90s i guess i was living i lived in the top floor of the one of the buildings behind that looked right down over your little courtyard yeah. like when the bands in the summer were playing it literally was like they were in my living room Brilliant. and i never complained so once we, mm. <laughs> <laughs> well he was gone at that stage was my dad he? was gone yeah yeah how old is your dad now he is 90 mm. yeah still in amazing shape driving around and yeah. climbing on roofs but now donahue's is a yeah, well-known watering hole. Yeah. Um, d- did you know it was when you were a kid or you was just... Yes, I blame it on my musical life mm. because I grew up in music. It was on all day long, every day there were yeah. sessions and I used to go there after school every day because I went to school in Stevens Green. <laughs> there was just music all the time. We used to go in on Sunday mornings. It was the most amazing music, the, mm. the most amazing Shadow singers, uh, trad musicians all the time. And yeah. then... Berlin. So what age were you when you decided, feck this? I was 13 years ago. It was 2007. I didn't really decide, feck this. I just stayed. I, I went for a month and stayed. Uh, and what was it about Berlin? And- um, it's a very lo-fi place. It's very spacious. It's very relaxed. People don't care about image. You can turn up to something very posh in dressed in your best and you'll be admired, but they don't care if you turn up in your very worst. And I love that. I love the fact that you can be whatever you want to be and there, there doesn't seem to be any judgment on that. Mm. I was very attracted to the fact it was very creative. People were making clothes and they'd just go in their basement and they'd open the door and say, it's a shop. <laughs> uh, and no name on the door. And there's still that going on, actually. There's a very community aspect of people there. The social, it still rests from when the the wall was was there. It's not very career-orientated, which can be a bad thing for many musicians who go there because they can get very creative and forget about the fact that they might want a career. (laughs) (laughs) And it does organised fun so well. Yes, it does. Yeah, Yeah, it suits me. It really suits me. And it, it suits having kids there. I feel I can be me very easily. In a way that you couldn't have been here? Yeah. I think the quality of life is higher over there for for my low standard of living. (laughs) (laughs) Your fella is French, though? He's French, that's right. And you have two kids. I have two kids. And are you raising two little Germans or two Um, little Irish kids with a French accent? (laughs) I asked my daughter and she said she's Irish-French. My son doesn't know the difference yet. Um, (laughs) And there's a lot of German in him because I see him in a kindergarten and uh, I think they might grow up to be very responsible human beings <laughs> <laughs> against their parents. <laughs> um, so you now you're going to do a song for us and yeah. um, it's a, a very appropriate song, I, I would say, for a show that um, has a very female vibe. Thanks. I wasn't sure if, you know, you'd accept it. Um, oh, listen, we um, are good to go with whatever. I was delighted. We're, we're post-watershed, so you can say vagina all you want. <laughs> She's going to say vagina a lot. So I need your help on this one, all of you beautiful people and all of you beautiful people. I would like to divide the room in half. Um, For people who can't see this, we have a beautiful audience here and I'm going to ask half of the room while I'm singing. I guess I'll go over to the instrument and I'll show you what it is, okay? And the the other half is another part and then I've got another part not to complicate. And we're going to be singing along with you. I hope so. We'll do our best.
Son's going to have quite the story when he goes back to school. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. You were amazing. <laughs> now, Elaine, let's talk about a little bit about the Tomb Babies. Yes. A horror, really, and what you're doing with that project. Okay, so I teach in Tomb in a secondary school. I teach all boys and have taught there for 19 years and was teaching there when the story of the Tomb Mother and Baby Home broke. And what I noticed was complete silence in the town, in the staff room. Nobody was discussing it. I wrote an op-ed piece and I don't think it went down very well. And then, you know, there started to become more awareness and survivor groups as a survivor network and so on and vigils and writers were being asked and musicians were being asked to come along and maybe read a poem and so on. But really, it was a space for the survivors to speak. I felt I was appropriating the story by reacting with my own poetry. I'd, mm. uh, you know, I hadn't experienced the horrors and so on. And I teach in NUIG in the creative writing in the English department, but I'm very drawn to the history department. It's the floor below the English department and I kind of mm. stop in there very regularly. Mm. And two historians and I, John Cunningham and Sarah Ann Buckley, got together and they had met contact with the Tomb Survivors Network. And we decided that 
it was really important that their oral history be recorded and archived at the university. And it started out as quite a small project. You know, we thought if we could get down maybe 20 first person narrative oral histories, that that would be a start. But actually it has really snowballed. So the project begins in earnest this September though some of the survivor stories have been recorded this summer, we also just wanted it to be that they could just feel like in a situation like this, that they could just tell their story, that it wasn't to the commission, it wasn't to the government. Mm. You know, the, the survivors are so desperate just to be heard and to be believed. Now, do you know how many people are in the Survivors Network? At the moment, like, we would have over, like, almost 50 people that are ready to now tell their story. You know, to be living in the area, even to, for me to work in the area, but for pe- survivors to live in Tume, I know they're all over Ireland and all mm. over the world, you know. You know, there's still a bishop's palace in that town. Mm. You know, I teach in a school, that's my boss. And I have conversation with the students about it all the time, you know. Um, my fifth years, I'm also teaching The Handmaid's Tale this year. I think I'm <laughs> the only teacher in Ireland that has chose that novel to 30, 17-year-old boys. But they want to know the story. They want to learn from the mistakes for restorative justice, you know, of the past and so I on. I expect they're going to love The Handmaid's Tale because I, I loved it as a kid. It's been just absolutely fascinating. And I think I'm learning more. I'm at that stage in life where actually they're teaching me more. They don't realise it. I'm like, and what do you think about this scenario? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, because they're the youth, like, you know. And, but an all-boys school that I still work in is a very unusual Scenario and all girls' schools and single gender religious schools are unusual. I yeah, that's the politest way I can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's strange. So, um, some parents at the parent teacher meeting were really thrilled, and some were really not so thrilled about the handmaid's tale. But what really fascinated me was they were engaged in a text. So, if I had decided no. to do the Great Gatsby or whatever else everybody else is doing, I wouldn't have heard anything, but it was interesting. Mm. Are you sure we're supposed to buy The Handmaid's Tale for the boys? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and how are you going to deal with the sex? Yeah. <laughs> now, Rosita, it's my sort of sense that as you get older, you have two choices. You can either become more mellow and centrist and think, ah, you know, whatever, or you can get more pissed off than you ever were. Which is true for you. You have to be careful, I think, not to be pissed off all the time. <laughs> I suppose one of the things of homeschooling the children was I stayed very involved with their concerns. And that really renewed me as a writer and as a person, I think, mm. as well. And you as know, an activist? Definitely, politically. Mm-hmm. You don't sort of drift off into middle-class suburbia, you know. And you've just written your memoir and it's it's coming out this year? I think think next year. Okay. Yeah. I'm calling it um, Feminism Backwards. (laughs) It's from a quote from Mamo MacDonald. I wasn't born a feminist, but life made a feminist of me. Mm. So I think you learn feminism, you go through the experience and then you realise, oh yeah, that has pushed me on. Mm. And and the environment, the mental crisis and those concerns, in a way, now, in some ways, I think, overshadow everything because there's not much point in worrying about you know our rights as people or a, for certain groups if the whole world is going to burn to a cinder anyway like is that how you see it now that that's the the central issue i feel um i suppose patriarchy has developed capitalism to such an extent that it's actually prepared to rape the world to death yes and unless for women, I think it's it's very strong for us because we have that awareness of bringing the next generation in. But yeah, we have to stop 
worshipping money, worshipping progress, worshipping power, which are the goodies the patriarchy sort of strings out. Um, and Emma, your father runs an environmental NGO. Is that yeah, he's in, an environmentalist in, in Sierra Leone. In Sierra Leone. EFA, is yeah. EFA is the name of the NGO, Environmental Foundation for Africa. And he's been running it since before I was born. And it's why he lives in Sierra Leone and, and not in Europe. And in places like Sierra Leone, which have so many resources, most of them are natural resources and they're not being protected at all. And there's very few people in Sierra Leone who have the luxury of putting the environment ahead of everything. You know, my dad is one of the few people who does that kind of work for few Sierra Leoneans. That's another thing. Most of the environmentalists in West Africa are not West African. Mm. So trying to work for an environment that you don't actually know is, is very difficult. So my dad's job is really important. And that's impacted on you? I mean, well, something... I mean... <laughs> I think my dad would love for us all to help him with this. You know, I, I'm his kid. I have my own thing going on. And I'm like, the yeah. environment, you know, I'm kind of a musician. <laughs> I'm doing physics and stuff like that. Sorry. Um, I got but, my hands full, Dad. Well, I'm kind I'm of busy at the moment. I'm trying to, like, prove this theory here. Um, now, let's hear your, your second song, your yeah. last song for us. And now, this is... This is uh, a, well, it's, it's written in... Some of it is written in Bambara, which is a Malian language. I don't speak Bambara. I've never even been to Mali, but all of my favourite musicians come from... From there and so um, you, you learned it phonetically. I learned it phonetically. I, I I I know a few people from Mali, so I got a few translations. Well, and what's it called? Was it's that? called Nsaheli, which means I'm north, and the song is about feeling drawn between these two different places that are very far away from each other. Well, let's uh, get your compass reading. Glory to 
fast from when they teach us break through you 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 know you are part of the dust that makes up the universe it up proud as the street proceeds your glory to stars from when they teach us you 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 know you are makes up the universe proud as the street proceeds you stars from when they teach us sing Into a bed of understanding, break anything when I'm mother singing one in a blanket. It's a singing of hope for rain, which will keep us thirsty. our radio listeners to go online and see the video of that performance because it's also so cool. <laughs> um, Nanina, tell me about this um, Irish festival you're doing in Berlin. Specifically, what I want to know is about the name. It's called Crawl. Yes, and, and explain that because I comes burst out laughing when I heard. <laughs> what's stuck in your crawl? Yeah. What are the things you can't say? What are the things you find it really hard to say? Basically, it came from that place. Yeah. And we chose artists and musicians who we felt had something to say that most people were afraid to say or that was hard for people to say. And we encouraged the artists to find that place inside themselves to create a new performance for themselves that would get rid of that thing that's stuck in their crawl. And, and is it generally that there are people are re referencing things about Ireland that's stuck in their crawl? Well, we were initially planning it on, this was the very first festival. Uh, it was an alternative Irish festival. And two of my curators with me, there were five of us, really did have a lot stuck in their crawl about Ireland. And they felt like they wanted to discuss that 
openly with audience and artists. We had 3,000 people come over a weekend. We thought there'd be about 200 and we were just shocked by how people wanted to get rid of that thing that's stuck in their craw and, and hear other people do it. That most, the biggest craw that most people had stuck in their throat? Oh, there were many. I guess capitalism, rising rents was a big deal. People okay, having yeah. to flee Ireland because they can't live here. And then also, Veda, what do they call people like you in Sierra Leone, you know, bicultural people? Two sim. <laughs> so two I'll explain. Sims, like a sim car from I'll your explain. phone. They call them two sim. Two sim. Yeah. So in, in West Africa, the phone companies are so expensive to call each other. Like 085 calling 087 is like extortionately expensive. So most people have loads of sim card slots in there. They sell phones. All the phones they sell have loads of sim card slots. So you can put in one, two, three sim. And they use this analogy for biracial people, bicultural people, like two sim, one sim, three sim, four sim. <laughs> I just sim. love that. I'm, yeah, I'm two sim. I mean, biologically, I'm three sim, but culturally, I'm two sim. <laughs> oh, yes, because you suddenly discovered that, three, that your mother's father was from Jamaica. Yes, yeah. She was adopted and uh, she, for most of her life, didn't know where her father was from because on her birth cert, which she wasn't allowed to see, but a very nice nun kind of gave her bits of information off it. The country of origin of her dad was South America. So she, she didn't have any idea where her dad was from. She had guessed a few different places. And I'm so dark-skinned that she was thinking he, he must have been dark-skinned as well because she's very fair. You wouldn't think that she's my mum. But yeah, she, she sent her, her DNA off and uh, found that she's half Jamaican. And it turns out that when he did his own lineage, it turns out his family are from Sierra Leone. His family were Sierra Leonean slaves. My mum was like... That blew her mind because she ended up marrying a Sierra Leonean and having kids with Sarah. So I'm actually just one sim. I'm just one sim. She found her Jamaican... So she found her Jamaican family. And How did she do that, though? So there's a lot of illegitimate Jamaican children and they all are on this website. 23andMe, you can send your DNA. Most people use it for a medical history kind mm. of thing. And then there's obviously people who don't know, who are trying to find relatives. And when she sent them her DNA, she signed it, made an account and everything, and she literally had loads of people who were cousins, second cousins, third cousins, and 80% of them were from Jamaica. And she was just like, what, Jamaica? I thought it was Brazil, because they said South America, country origin. So, yeah, so after more and more research, she narrowed it down, and now she's got, like, a huge Jamaican family. She's got four siblings, so many cousins, I don't even know how many. We're going to visit some of her cousins and in New York. And a whole other musical tradition for you, too. Other, yeah, there's, music, there's loads of musicians on her side of the family. She was very happy about that, because my dad is always trying to claim the credit for our musical uh, talents. And she's like, no, Tommy, um, my cousin got a Grammy, okay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that is it, I'm afraid, for this weekend from our very woman's conversation today and thanks to all my guests to the redoubtable Rosita Boland to poet Elaine Feeney who is working on a novel at the moment I should probably point out which is a new departure um, and to our beautiful songstresses Nina Hines and Emma Garnett aka Feta uh, thank you both it's all been wonderful uh, you can catch up with our two songs Ladies of Song online uh, Instagram and all that because they're very beautiful um, and you can catch up on all things Pantasocracy at pantasocracy.ie including longer cuts of this show so we don't miss anything um, um, that's it from us, and thank you so much for uh, listening. Good night.
Fantasocracy is an Athena Media production for RTE. And as Panty Bliss says, you can find podcasts and videos of tonight's show in the show's website, pantasocracy.ie. Next week in the final episode in this season, Panty Bliss is talking sex and sex workers with podcaster and former porn star Connor Habib, novelist Lisa McInerney, Keen Kinsla of Lords of Strut and sex researcher Dr. Caroline West.